0: Hello and welcome to the Recovering From Religion podcast. Our mission here is to offer hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. What follows is the audio from selected videos posted on Recovering From Religion's YouTube channel. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. So, Danielle is a PhD and she helps
1: mom's grapple with what it is that makes a person. She is a philosophical coach and co-creator and co-host of the Think Hard podcast, which brings philosophy to the real world. Um, obviously, she has a PhD in philosophy and a graduate certificate in Women in philosophy from the American Philosophical Practitioners Association. Uh, when her daughter was born, she almost broke her brain trying to figure out what the hell happened, and now she helps other moms make sense of motherhood. So, Danielle, welcome. Thanks, Ramaya.
2: Thank you for having me back at RFRX. Really great to be here. Um, yeah, I, um, I am a philosopher, as you said, and I work primarily with moms on the issues, uh, on what I call the existential crisis of motherhood. Um, and I, um, I have a new course. Well, I have a course that I've been teaching for a while called The Meaning of Motherhood, but now thanks to uh, the world we find ourselves in, that course is
3: online. Yeah. Key. And we've got a link in here to that, right?
2: Yeah. yeah.
4: Maybe.
3: It's on your website? Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. perfect. So this is like your third
2: time on RVRX? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You're, you're, uh, you're pretty darn popular. And since, um, looking at some of the YouTube numbers, uh, just the content, the, the topics and the way you discuss things, people love watching it. So, we're just grateful to to have you back. So um, uh, we're here to talk about morality. Is that right?
2: Yes, that's right. Morality without religion or morality without God.
3: So where would we possibly start? Because when I have discussions with folks like on the street, like an Ask an Atheist event or even in uh, various debates, this is something that actually comes up quite a lot. Um, it seems like. Um, m- many religious people think that their religion has the market that have cornered the market on morality,
2: yeah and i, I was raised um sort of evangelical Christian, and when I lost my faith when I was in college I, it was a it was a real crisis for me too. It was this like how do I um think about what is to guide me now, what should guide my actions and ju- guide my choices and actually the the course I took in college which kind of set me down the path of uh of sort of veering off from religion was an ethics course right and it was the first time i had thought about the fact that you could think about right and wrong and and how to um how to guide your life independent of religion and the so i want to share with you the um the, the text that i read that kind of started me on this journey and this is actually a really like old ancient text it's one of the Soplatic, so- Socratic di- dialogues. So, um, it's a dialogue between Socrates and this guy, lawyer at the time in ancient Greece named Eusikro. And, um, Socrates, you know, had this habit of going and talking to just like the people in town to try and figure out what's true and good and right and just and beautiful. And he was having this conversation with Eusikro, who was a lawyer and who was actually prosecuting his father because his father had had a slave that he accidentally killed. So this, this, oh. this, enslaved,
1: yeah,
2: this enslaved person, um, he'd done something, I can't even remember what he did, but he'd done something that Yudhiko's father didn't like, and as punishment, he, like, tied him up and, like, left him in a ditch for a while, and when he went back to go get him, the guy was dead. So Yudhiko, as a prosecutor and as a lawyer, was like, well, This is, I don't care that this is my dad. He killed someone unjustly and he should be prosecuted. And so, but he was, he was trying to figure out if this was the right thing to do. If he should be prosecuting his father or not. So he and Socrates get into this conversation about, well, how do we know what the right thing to do is? And they go back and forth for a little bit and, and Euthypro says, well, I know what the right thing to do is. I know what the pious thing is. Uh things are pious if, if the gods approve of them. And Socrates is like, well, yeah, but some gods may approve of it, and other gods may not approve of it. And he's like, well, okay, it's good if all the gods together approve of it. They all are in if they're all unanimous, then it's the right thing to do. And and Socrates asks the question, which is like the question in um in meta ethics, right? The study of ethics. Is, is something good or pious or right? He says, is it pious because the gods love it? Or do the gods love it because it's pious? And really what that's, that,
3: comes from, yeah, that's
2: right. a great what, question. It, it's like, is something right and good because God approves of it or because culture approves of it or because you or I approve of it? Or is it good independent of those things? Right. So this is like a wedge between what's right and God's opinion of it or anyone hmm.
3: else's. Opinion of it. I like that. That's, that's, it, even what, what that was, uh, two and a half thousand years ago, they're having this discussion. 2,500 years ago, they were having this discussion and, um, it kind of made that point. It's an excellent, excellent point. I love it. Uh, so how, how would you kind of define morality, um, and, uh, in a sense, unless unless we're getting down that road, um, just to kind of start off as like a base level.
2: For definitional question of it?
3: Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, I think um, philosophers talk about morals and they talk about ethics. And generally, mm-hmm. um, I think you can kind of use them interchangeably, right? Um, the way that I've always sort of thought about it is that ethics is sort of the study of what's right and wrong, where morality is like a particular code. Of what's right and wrong, right? So, like this, this moral code.
3: Kind of, yeah, uh, I like that distinction. because yeah, that's something that's always kind of confused me. Like I've used them inter- interchangeably uh, mm-hmm. as well, and having that distinction, like this study of, of morals <laughs> would be ethics. That totally makes sense to me.
2: Yeah, but I think people generally use them interchangeably, and and that's
3: something I, I think should, too.
2: Yeah. So, so it's it's really the question about what the right course of action, is, right? It's a question about how, as we're social creatures, we live in the world with other humans, and sometimes our interests to conflict. Um, and so it's figuring out what the appropriate action is to take in a given situation, right? It, and a particular moral code will point you in a specific direction based on whatever that code dictates, right? But that question of is morality connected to, um, to a certain God or a certain culture or a certain way of thinking? Um, and it just sort of depends on who you ask, right? Like you ask a Christian, they'll give you one set of right and wrong. You, you know, you ask, um, you know, someone who lives in second century BCE Greece, they will give you a different moral code about what's right and wrong. And so, It's really a question of, like, what is right and wrong may depend on who you ask and when and where you are. Or maybe it has nothing to do with who you ask and when and where you are. Things are just wrong because they're wrong. It doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, lying is wrong. Killing is wrong. Abusing small children is wrong, regardless. It almost
3: seems like there needs to be sort of, like, a stated goal or stated um uh i don't know understanding in order to sort of define these these sets of morals or something
2: yeah so it depends right like um in in philosophy there are generally three maybe four major ethical schools of thought so the first one is known as utilitarian ethics right and the idea there is The right thing is the, is the action that will bring about the greatest good for the greatest number of people, right? And so that is the, that's the goal, as you say. That's sort of like the, the, the guiding principle for that way of thinking about morality, right? But then there's, the second one is called, um, deontology, and the idea there is, well, the right action doesn't depend on the outcome. The action is either right or wrong in and of itself. Right? So let me take, give you two examples. The, the trolley experiment. I'm sure many of the people here have heard of the trolley experiment, right? This is the classic, um, thought experiment with thinking about utilitarianism. So let's say you have a trolley coming down the track and there's a fork in the, in the track, right? And on one side, you've got five people who have been tied to the track by a nasty villain or something and find themselves on the track there. And on the other side, there's one person tied to the track, right? And so uh, on. you're standing on a bridge, you're looking at what's happening, and next to you, there's a big lever that says, if you pull this lever, the trolley, which is, su- is supposed to go to those five people, will be diverted and actually only hit the one person, right? And so you ask a utilitarianist, you know, or a utilitarian philosopher, what should you do? And they would say, well, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. So, you pull the lever, you save the five people, you kill the one person. Now you have an action, and through your action, someone who would not have died is going to die, but you have saved those five people. Right? The problem with that, and that seems For a lot of us, that's sort of the way we think about things, is that, like, you want to save the number of people, the most number of people that you can, but it gets really tricky, because what if you didn't realize that that one person that you just killed actually had the cure for cancer, and now that person won't live to save all of those people who would have died of cancer, and now you've actually, instead of doing the right thing, you've actually done the morally wrong thing, and then... Now you can't undo that, right? So that that's tricky. It also gets tricky when you think about, okay, well, let's say same scenario, but instead of a lever that you pull to divert the train, instead, standing next to you on the bridge is just a very large person. And you know that if you push this person off the bridge, the train will stop and it will save the five people. Really no different in terms mm-hmm. of the numbers, right? Say, you know, you sacrifice one to save the five, but it feels somehow more wrong than just pulling a lever and killing someone that has not died otherwise, right? So this is a, this is a principle. And you'll notice that that idea of the greatest good for the greatest number of people has nothing to do with any religious or, um, supernatural You know, origin, right? It just says, like, we're humans that live in a society, and we want to maximize happiness in the world, and so we're going to act in a way to maximize happiness, right? And that's a human
1: value. And we can try and do that, but as we see, it's
2: very sticky,
1: very quickly. And how do you feel about negative utilitarianism? I know maybe this is, yeah, maybe this is too, like, personal, but, yeah, just to know your thoughts. So are you talking about sort of, like, negative responsibility? Also, in, in the sense that, um, it works the same as normal utilitarianism, but, um, increasing happiness would never be at the cost of the suffering of someone else. So, for example, if you have to kill one person to make five people ten points happier, you wouldn't be able to, even if in the classical utilitarianism you would, because it works in almost like mathematical way.
2: Yeah. So there is a kind of like way to talk about the utilitarian, um, approach that does have kind of like a stopgap there where it's like, it's like, yeah, you can maximize the number of paths, greatest good for the greatest number, as long as you don't go around like killing people and harvesting their organs for the people who don't have them, right? Like it's just if it, you get if there is a there is clearly a, a problem there. But but the question then becomes, okay, well which are the which are the actions that you decide are no good, regardless, right? Where do you put the where do you put the stop at? Where do you put those stop gaps at, and why?
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm thinking more in like, um, like a philosophical sense. In the in the sense that I'm not bringing it to the real world. It's more like there is definitely an answer of what would create more happiness and decrease suffering, but we are probably not able to know that answer because we have not got, <laughs> you know,
2: right. Yeah, I mean, and and that's part of the problem, right? You don't you don't necessarily know if Saving these five people will result in, like, how many units of happiness are we talking, yeah. right? 10 point mm-hmm. How much is that? Do we care, you know, like, how do we measure it? Who gets to decide how many units of happiness are being passed mm-hmm. around? One person 10 units happier, or 10 people one unit happier, right? Like,
3: well, it sounds like then um, things uh, may the relative to the situation, um, or, or is there some sort of like absolute? Uh, set of uh, of morals like but it does kind of seem like things change with the situation
2: so yeah in utilitarianism they do and i just want to like quickly note that in different parts of the world um right now because of the covid crisis like we are doing utilitarian calculations as societies all time right now right we we are like and people are in different places on that Right. The, uh, many of our governments have decided that it would be better for society in general to shut down economic processes and exchange so that we can save people's lives. Although there are plenty of people who are just like, well, you gotta, you know, crack a few eggs to make an omelet. Let's like, let the virus run its course so that all of us can who are make it through to the other side. We'll have another side to make it through to or whatever. Right. So like, These are things that are not just like abstract trolley fun thought experiments. These are calculations that our politicians and our citizens are making all the time, right? But your question, Eric, about that, like, is it, is it relative? Utilitarianism, it's, it has a guiding principle that is clear, right? And that guiding principle is just a decision that we like, we are going to decide that we value Happiness, however we define that, <laughs> and maximizing that happiness through our actions. But what counts as maximizing happiness can change from situation to situation based on the consequence. Now, that's one way of thinking about morality. Another way of thinking about morality um, comes primarily from Immanuel Kant, he's the one who talked about it in, in philosophy. And he says look, actions are right or wrong. Regardless of the outcome, like killing someone is wrong. The B- end. I don't care if you save ten thousand people by killing this one person. You don't do it. N- period. And
3: period. And he, uh he, he was alive before Hitler came to power. He was. He was. Do you think that would have changed his mind at all?
2: <laughs> I'm not sure. I want to make any guesses about that. <laughs> 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 Well, but the thing about it, so Kant is often considered to be this kind of like, like the cowboy, you know, of morality in philosophy. If, if if philosophy can have like badass cowboy types, then I guess Kant would be it. Um, but but there's also like a situation in which people who maybe they grew up, for example, with the Ten Commandments. Right, the Ten Commandments are a deontological code, or it's like you don't steal, you don't lie, you don't kill, period, the end, no matter what the circumstances are in the story, I don't care how much happiness it will maximize to do the opposite. And that might be something that's really appealing to you. And certainly it's much less fuzzy than the utilitarian way of looking at things, right? It's like it it doesn't care about the consequences. And, it, and so as, as you said, Amaya, we don't have to like, pretend to be God and do all of these like weird calculations about the maximum happiness outcomes because we're not concerned about the outcomes. we're concerned about the actions and the rightness and wrongness even not themselves. So that would be really appealing. But there's also uh another thought experiment that that tests this way of looking at it. So um for example, let's say I um I come to you, Eric, and I'm, like, knocking on your door. I run over. I knock on your door. You open the door, and I'm, like, huffing and puffing, and I'm like, Eric, you got to let me in the house. Amaya's after me. We had a kind of a disagreement. I think she's trying to kill me. You have to hide me, right? And so you're like,
4: cool.
2: All right, come on in. You can hide in the basement, right? Shut the door. Five minutes later, you a knock on the door. Amaya's there, and she's got, like, a big butcher knife in her hand, which you see as she hides it behind her back. And she's like, oh, hey, Eric. Um, So I was just looking for Danielle. Have you seen her? Right?
3: That sounds like the M.I. I know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so Khan would say, look, and this is actually like a thought experiment that he, he commented on. He said, if uh, this were to happen, the right thing to do? Well, let me ask you Eric, what is the right thing to do? Uh,
3: well, my th- just first instinct is like is to lie. Like, no, I haven't seen her or or I saw her go that way towards the police station or something like that.
2: Right. Yeah, that's the first instinct because you think well, lying would be a better would result in a better outcome here, right? We right about the outcomes and we think lying could result in the murder of my friend and so I'm going to lie to try and prevent that from happening. Right? And the utilitarians would say that is the right thing to do. Right? Lying is not only morally acceptable or like, you know, permissible. It's actually appropriate. It's like what you ought to do is to lie. Right? Kant says lying is not Okay. Hmm. The end. You, Eric, are not... Resp- a- and then if you're like, oh, yeah, she's in the basement. And then Maya's like, great, I need to go to the basement to check something. Uh, I'll- Will you let me in? <laughs> right? Or Can not? I come
3: in and fix your water heater, Eric? <laughs> I have my knife to, cut to fix the water heater.
2: I <laughs> like, you know. Amaya is her own moral agent. You are your own moral agent. What you are responsible for is your own moral actions. And you gotta keep yourself clean. You wouldn't do things like mm. sulking yourself by lying. Amaya is her own moral agent and she wants to go around murdering people. That's on her.
3: Right? Wow. That is awesome. pretty cut and dry. That's hard. That's hard to swallow that, uh, that view of the
2: world. It is, which is sort of why, you know, Punk gets that reputation of being the, like, hard ass moral cowboy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of us would balk at that and say, like, I don't know, something about that just doesn't feel quite right, right?
3: That sounds very, like, very concrete and, and no wiggle room and, like, uh, unflinching, unbending, unyielding, um, just seems like there's this this list of things you have to do to keep yourself clean like you had mentioned like morally, and you cannot ever divert from that um no matter what the situation
2: yeah well and, and that kind of um con- i He had this maximum, this guiding principle. In the same way that the utilitarians have this guiding principle of like maximum good for the maximum number of people, Kant also had a guiding principle. And he Mm -hmm. said, you should act such that you would want to your actions to be enacted by all of humanity, right? So he, and so sometimes people try and introduce some wiggle room here, right? He says like, look, you don't lie because if you lie, then you would, you're saying that lying is okay for other people to do, and if other people lie, then society falls apart, so you don't lie, right? So some people try and say, like, well, you know, maybe you could say that anyone in this situation would lie in this situation, and that's what we would want all people to do. But the problem with that is then it, like, really proliferates out and gets really messy where it's like, well, exactly how is your guiding principle? happening here and are you um i mean it kind of himself was clear it's just like you don't lie
1: period right, because- sorry uh so how does he cite which are the moral principles that they're unbreakable like why is lying bad? you know does it have a rationale and behind each like commandment in a way because it does sound a bit like you know like god trying to set up a few rules that you cannot break under any circumstance and also across different cultures, which may value different things in terms of happiness and pain.
2: Yeah. Right. So that's a great question. I mean, so that guiding principle act such that you want all humanity to act in that way. is it's kind of his guiding principle. Um, and he gives some examples like lying. Um, he gives the other example of like, if you were to borrow money from someone knowing that you weren't going to repay them, right? Like that's, I yes, kind of lying, right? And
4: just something we wouldn't want
2: to do. But I think he very much is, is guided by this sense that human beings need to use their reason and their rationality to make decisions about morality and not their emotions, right? And we need to use our reason to appeal to that, you know, like, what do I want my society to look at? Right? Another way, so there are actually three ways that he said this. He said, one, act such that you want all people to act this way. Two, another way of of saying the same thing, decide for yourself if this is true or not, but another way of saying the same thing, he claimed, was act such that you always treat people as ends in themselves and never as means to them. So you don't use people, essentially, right? And if you lie to someone, you're using. And you're not hmm. respecting them as full, rational agents and beings, right? So you would lie to Amaya even though she was, like, holding a knife because if you, if you don't, then you're not fully respecting her. Humanity,
3: right? Yeah.
2: Now, or would I be disrespecting you? <laughs> well, or- you didn't lie to me, right? Um did kind of say he did have a caveat and he said that look, when people uh break their when they stop using their rationality and they break the, you know, killing someone is not how we want all people to act, so they are not being a rational being and so we don't have to treat them like a rational being and then all all of that's wrong Right? So you could have a little loophole there.
3: Man, that's just it sounds like number one, people could really take advantage of other folks that have this kind of moral uh, uh, rigidity, and then number two, acting the way that you want all of society to act—that sounds idealistic. Like it's not like, hey, I've come up with this uh, maxim, and then all of a sudden everybody's like, oh yeah, let's just do that together. And um,
2: <clears throat> and Kant himself said, like, look, this is a this is aspirational. Okay. Um, it, we're, we're we're trying to hit the third way of um, of sort of formulating his maxim is like act such that we are are creating a kingdom of ends, and by that he means like a purely kind of rational world, right? Um, and yeah, it is idealistic, and Kant would say, would say like so, you know, <laughs> 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 he, I mean. Also the guy who like wrote an essay called Perpetual Peace and like, you know, he was an an idealistic guy.
3: Was he like the eighteen nineties hippie or something like that?
2: <laughs> I mean, he never left town and never got married, and um yeah, like, did did a lot of reading and writing. So if that's uh the eighteenth century- <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, Pisa Oh wow. Well that's he sounds like one hell of an interesting guy. Um, to read about, uh, not necessarily the, it, it just, it doesn't seem to fit well in, in modern society, in my, uh, my view.
2: Well, I mean, in a way, you know, I think a lot of people aspire to live by those principles. Like, okay. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when I was growing up in a religious household, I was taught the 10th Amendment and aspired to act, uh, according to them. Um, the problem is that like the real world is really messy and human beings are really messy. And we, we come in, we bump into all these situations in which that kind of like ideal way of acting seems irresponsible. There's
1: something in us
2: that says that just seems irresponsible. Mm-hmm.
1: So I guess in the complete opposite of Kant's uh commandments, do we have moral relativism? Yeah. So Kant himself um, was
2: an absolutist. He was, so there's there's sort of these two um ways of thinking about morality in terms of um meta ethics or like the ethics about ethics study about ethics right we can think of of morals as being absolute, and Kant's certainly were very absolutist, right here's the, here are these guiding principles here's how these actions fall into these principles. This is the truth, and Kant thought he got access to the truth. Like from on high, not from on high, but through reason, right? He didn't say God. He said nature, with capital N. Right? Nature is what gives us these laws, and our human capacity for reason is how we can understand and get access to these moral truths. Um, but it was this very absolute way of looking at it. Whereas, um, you know, way back where where Plato and Socrates were asking. Um, do the gods love it because it's the right thing, right? Or is it the right thing because the gods love it? Mm-hmm. It's really asking, like, okay, well, is that just you, a an old white guy who is deciding that reason and, um, you know, this is the right thing to do? Or is that actually just a really culturally specific way of interpreting right and wrong? And that the truth is that every culture has their own ideas of what's right and wrong, and those sometimes come into conflict, and neither one is more good or real or true than the other. And that in fact they're just different. That's it. They're just different. Mm-hmm. And that I think is appealing in some ways and hard in other ways.
1: Yeah, because then you could justify, let's say there is like this um new community in the Arctic, that kills the new—I don't know—the first child of the family because they want to sacrifice it to the gods, or because they think it's the right thing to do. Um, which obviously we would be horrified about that, but I guess with that reasoning, you could justify it.
2: Yeah, they would just say, you know, this—this um, this is sort of the, the hardcore moral relativist would say, like, look. An anthropologist by the name of Ruth Benedict was someone who, like, kind of famously. Talked about this. She she studied lots of different people in around the world and like, look, there are some people who like, yeah, they have human sacrifices or they um, infanticide is an appropriate thing to do if like, you know, us we just had a baby we, we can't feed it. Everyone else is hungry. We're going to leave the baby in the snow, and that's actually the right thing to do. That's morally appropriate according to this culture right, or that, you know, you know, all of these different practices, right, that we, from our vantage point, might look over there and say, that's horrible, that's morally abhorrent, how could you possibly do that? But inside their culture, it's the right thing to do for them. And our way of looking at morality is the right thing to do for us.
3: Well, and th- there's a thought experiment, experiment too, about smothering a baby that's crying. Uh, it sounds like this is something along those lines too.
2: Yeah, right. That's, that's, um, you know, if you're, I mean, this was that, that mash episode, right? The end of mash actually, like, like yeah. this out, right? They're in the Vietnamese jungle and um, the, Enemy is approaching and there's a whole house, of people hiding out and the baby's crying, right? You gotta get the baby to be quiet, otherwise everyone's gonna be found out, right? Is smothering the baby the right thing to do here? Yeah. Right? Um, and, and that, that gets, that's that utilitarian, right? Kind of question. Like, do you do this to save everyone, right? But I think that, the, also the issue of like, can we actually make judgments about other people's moral actions at all? And if so, based on what? Based on our own opinions of it? Based on a moral code? And if that moral code is in conflict with another moral code, well, who says that you have the right answer? Right? Absolutism is really... um helpful in some ways because it gives you a clear answer. This is right, this is wrong. I don't care if you think the rape of 14-year-old girls by men twice their age is okay. It's the wrong thing to do. I'm just going to say that it's wrong. You're wrong for doing it. It's morally objectionable. No one should do this. End of story. Right? I can feel very self-righteous by saying that because I have this moral code that says this is the right way to do And the problem with that is that Who's to say that I'm the one with access to the truth instead of those people? And if I claim that I have access to the truth and other people are something mistaken about their moral ideals, that actually gives me license to kind of impose my will upon them. Maybe go to where they live mm, okay. and tell them that their way of living is stupid and backwards. And here you should read this book because it has the truth in it.
1: So what do you think is like the, at the core of moral, of ethics? So in, in the sense that is it well-being? Is it happiness? Is it, uh, avoidance of suffering? Is it something else that I'm missing? Cause I feel like, I mean, I'm not sure, obviously there isn't an agreement on, on what it is, but do you have like, I don't know, like an opinion on what would be the, the core thing that we're after with morality? Cause I feel like that would answer out of questions.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that, that's actually, a really good starting point. Um, I'm not sure if I, I have a clear answer. I mean, I have some ideas, you know, like one would hope that we would be able to have a moral code in which we were able to support and allow for the flourishing of the lives of most people in our society, even if they disagree, right? But like diversity is a value of mine that may not be someone else's value. Right, so I tend to be kind of a a relativist, honestly. Even though it's kind of like a, in some ways, it can relativism can be really dangerous. And I think that often what happens is that I would I would see this a lot with like freshman philosophy students who tend to be very relativistic, and it's just like, well, we don't want to talk, we don't want to tell anyone how to think. And my opinion is just my opinion, and your opinion is just your opinion, and neither of us are right or wrong, and so we're just not going to talk. Right. And I think what happens is that sometimes people can get really lazy and they can just say like, well, we're just different at the end and not actually have any kind of conversation or debate about about why you believe what you believe or why this person. So I think it's important for us to try and communicate with each other and understand our beliefs and understand other people's beliefs and see perhaps maybe there are some values in common. And maybe we can build a relationship on those common values. But that takes work. And so just saying that, like, your beliefs are different than mine and the end and, and we'll just, like, not talk about it or, like, not pretend like it's important, that t- to me just seems um, intellectually lazy. So yeah. I, it's a very long answer to your question. I think that... Asking what is the goal is just as problematic as asking what the answer
1: to, the,
2: to solving the goal is, right? Because everyone might have different answers about what the goal
1: is. Yeah, yeah no, that makes sense. I feel like it's it's the question, right, of of ethics, I guess. Because once you have solved that question, if there is a solution, then you have kind of agreed to what it is that we are trying to do here with morality and ethics and trying to make the world a better place, uh, yeah. But no, thank you for sharing your thoughts. Cause, um, I wasn't aware that students are kind of famous for being relativists. So that's quite interesting. I wasn't expecting that. Cause I feel like when you're just starting uni, you probably just want to argue more and you want to debate more and be more challenging. So it's interesting to know.
2: I mean, maybe it depends on where you are in the world, you know, so what sort of flavor you get. I think different, um, different cultures, again, different cultures have different kind of norms about that. Um, I think certainly right now in the U.S., we have, people are much more divided and, and absolutist, perhaps, about those things than in
4: generations previous.
3: So I hear what you're saying about uh, how cultures have different sets and who am I to say that this is wrong in their culture. But, you know, and here, here comes the but. But I see things that are um awful and affecting other people, like uh um being shot for not wearing a hijab or uh cutting off people's arms or hands or fingers for stealing. Um what what I I ha my initial instinct is to kind of like judge them, like this is not the right thing to do. But, uh, again, you're telling me that this is their, the morals that exist within their culture. Um, uh, but I'm also hearing you say that the one good way that to possibly handle that is to have a conversation with them and, and discuss why, why I think it's bad and why they think it's okay.
2: I mean, yeah, if you can find someone to have that conversation with you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I too, like when I say I'm a relativist, um, I still have my own moral code, right? That's, that's, I was raised in a certain culture that taught me that certain things were right and certain things were wrong. And, and I'm, uh, you know, a humanist and a feminist and those come with certain, um, ideas about right and wrong. Right. Um, you know, I think that like, a not-racist society is a better society than a racist society. And I think, you know, that the subjugation of women is morally abhorrent, right? Or abhorrent. And I recognize that I come from a certain time, a certain place, a certain part of the world. And the reason I think it's wrong is because I see the world from that perspective. So I I try and, I mean, in some ways... I feel like I'm trying to have it both ways, right? Where it's like, that's wrong. I think it's wrong, but I'm aware that I think it's wrong. And I don't know that I want to say that my way of viewing the world mm
3: -hmm. is
2: any supernatural source.
3: So I'm going to change your name here in uh, Zoom to Danielle uh, having her cake and eating it too. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I'm, and it also kind of goes to what you're talking about, like viewing people from the past and, and some of the things that they thought were acceptable, like, um, uh, slavery is a prime example, or, um, I, I don't know why blanking on another example, but, uh, it, it, you're, it almost seems like you're, you're asking us to hold two separate, two conflicting ideas in our head at the same time.
2: I mean, I don't know that I'm asking anyone else to do that. I'm just trying to explain how I kind of move through the world. I think that, um, I think that for me, there is this strange paradox to it. And we talked about this a little bit when I was on, on previously, um, where like the metaphor is, I think you can play soccer really hard, right? And you can like, like play the sport and you can, Believe in it and play according to it and people hold people accountable to the rules of the sport, all the while knowing that the rules are just sort of arbitrary made up. They're
3: not
2: come from the heavens, right?
3: Oh, and they get, and they change over time.
2: They change over time and they are human inventions. And so I think that that's kind of how I tend to to view it.
3: So as a big soccer fan, I can uh, feel justified in looking down upon the football fans.
2: Well, I mean, I think technically we have to call it football if we're um, (laughs) going to be
3: (laughs) good. Good point. (laughs) Uh, So, where do we kind of go from here?
2: Well, I do want to mention the like last big um, sort of school of thought in the philosophical ideas about ethics, Um, and that is uh, so we have utilitarianism, which is sometimes called consequentialism because it's worried about the cost consequences of actions. There's yeah. deontology, right, which is Kant's cont- like, you know, you don't use people and things are either right or wrong. And then there's a school a third school of, of thought that comes from Aristotle and it's called virtue ethics. And virtue ethics is this kind of um the idea is that people are building moral character over time that Moral character is a behavioral thing that's done, not, it's not like here's the rule, you have to adhere to the rule correctly, always, or you're an immoral person. It tends to be a little bit more flexible. And what Aristotle said is that what we're trying to do is go for the, um he said, the mean, uh, the golden mean between two extremes. So, for example... Temperance is the mean or the middle point between um indul like overindulgence and
4: sort of asceticism.
2: Like you don't want to be too far one way or too far the other way. Um another example is like, you know, courage is the middle point between cowardice and foolishness. Right? So you want to try and figure out what the kind of middle middle uh virtue is. And then you want to live your life in such a way that you're trying to aim for the middle of those two extremes. And what Aristotle says is that the right, there is a right thing for each person to do, but the right thing to do depends on who you are, who you like, what the situation is. And you have to act like in the right amount, in the right way, at the right time, for the right reason, uh, for the right, you know, for the right length of time, etc., that there is a right for that, um, but it varies from situation to situation. So that is like sounds kind of good in that it's like okay, you're shooting for the middle, and that seems right. But then it's like okay, but do I actually have any actually any any guidance here, right? And he says. It's like the right amount of food. Like, the right amount of food for a 200 pound linebacker is gonna be different than the right diet for a, you know, 100 pound calorie. Right? They're just, there, there is a a best diet for both of them, but it's gonna be different depending on who they are and what the situation is. Right? And, and Aristotle thinks that morality is like that. So it's a little bit, it's, like, both absolutist in that he thinks there is a right answer, but that
1: is very dependent on the situation. Um, it kind of, until you said it's quite absolutist, it kind of reminded me of relativism, because it's, like, it depends on the situation, blah, blah, blah. So I, mm-hmm. I feel like it's a very... I find it the most difficult to understand. So I think it's just, like, somewhere in the middle that's not either one of those. I don't know. It's just a bit strange. How would you apply it? I don't know. Do you know any, like, modern... Philosophers that apply it, like with real ethical issues. And if so, can you give us like maybe an example? Like an yeah. ethical example.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think of like a modern virtue ethics. I actually think that they can be common. Like an example would be, um, let's say, well, let's say anger, right? Like you're, you're dealing with anger, right? So Aristotle, you know, he was a Greek. He was not a Christian. I think that, you know, the the there is this kind of um at least when I the way that I grew up and the kind of Christianity I grew up with, it was like anger is something that you should never have or you'll be a bad person. Um, even though, well. Uh and and Aristotle as a as a Greek was just like,
4: no, anger is appropriate
2: sometimes. Right? Like righteous indignation is an appropriate Moral response. If you see, like, so for example, uh, if you see someone being treated unjustly, you ought to be angry about that, right? That you can, um, but you have to be angry in the right way for the right person for the right amount of time, right? With the right kind of like, uh, response. So if, you know, I see this person who is the victim of racism, for example, right? You have to think of like, well, based on who I am, based on who, who those people are, what is the right response here? Right? And the right response might be different depending on who you are and who that person is, right? And who the situation are. Um, and, you know, Aristotle says the right response is hitting that golden mean, finding, finding the bullseye of the arrow, uh, or, Whatever you, however you might say that, right? Finding the bull, the bullseye and, and trying to navigate towards it. But it's not, um, again, it's like a nice way, a nice guiding principle, but I'm not sure that it actually tells you what to do in any given situation.
1: So you have, you have to be the one doing all the thinking. It's not yeah. like a, a guide of rules. Okay. Yeah, exactly. exactly.
2: So those are like the three big, you know, schools of thought in ethics about, and and you'll notice that none of those appeal to God. None of those appeal to, um, scripture or religious texts. They all are ways of thinking about morality and thinking about ethics that are independent of any theology. Right. And, and they, they each offer something different. They each offer, um, sometimes really clear, good guidance and sometimes, muddy and not clear guidance, um, they all actually sort of make some basic assumptions though. They they all make the assumptions that we are like autonomous, free thinking, rational agents who can make these sorts of decisions. Um, And in like the 1980s, a bunch of feminist philosophers popped up and they're like, what about caretakers? What about people in uneven power relationships like parents and children? Like Sometimes, you know, like the the right thing to do differs when someone has dependence and they're not, they can't just like be their own autonomous individual person that can make these decisions, right? So I'm not sure that I've offered, I feel like when I learned about all of this stuff, I remember learning about those different schools of Philosophical thinking. Learned about utilitarianism. I was like, yes, that's right. That seems like the right thing to do. Absolutely. Let's all act like that. And then, you know, we read a couple of like pro utilitarian articles and then a couple of like, but here are all the problems. And I was like, oh, no, that's bad. Let's not like act that way. And then I was like, well, here's deontology. It's like, that's the way we should do it. <laughs> I and mean, I went through that over and over and over again. And finally, at the end of the course, I was like, I'm more confused than when I started. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I really just wish that I could go back to the Bible and just like have it tell me what to do in the situation. But at that point, it was already broken. I couldn't. I couldn't go back. And then I had to do the hard work of moving forward and figuring out, okay, well, now it's up to me. It's up to me to figure out what my moral code is and how to orient myself in the world. And I went looking, you know, and I, I think, um, I don't, I still don't have a clear answer
4: about a lot of things.
1: You know? That's fair. Do you have any, uh, maybe I'm putting you in the, in the spot here, but do you have any that you prefer, like not to follow blindly, but, you know, any, any, anyone that convinces you more than the others, I guess?
2: Well, I mean, <sighs> I tend to um I tend to agree with a lot of the philosophical tenets of Buddhism. And Buddhism has its own moral code um, About it's called the moral eight or the noble not moral it's called the noble eightfold path. And the idea is like if you do these things you will get closer to enlightenment. Um and they include things like they call them right speech, which means like, speak truthfully, don't gossip, don't use your speech to, to harm people, right? Um, right action, or right, yeah, right action, which means like, don't kill other things, don't steal. And not because those things are absolutely right or wrong, but because what they do is they strengthen your attachment to your ego and they make you more selfish essentially, because you are taking things that don't belong to you because you want it. And whenever you do something just because you want it, you're strengthening that ego attachment. And it's going to get you further away from real happiness. And and I think it's hard for people sometimes who lose faith in religion because the idea that God will punish the wrongdoers can actually be really comforting for people, right? It's like, well, these people acted totally in unjustly or morally, but they're going to have their day. Right. And the, they'll have to face, you know, St. Peter or whatever. At the early games. And I think, um, it's really hard if you, if you once counted on that as being this kind of like moral evening, the moral scales to the universe. And then if you lose that then it's like, well, it just, so what might makes right. Like it's just chaos. It's, like how where is the judge in the sky like who Oh
3: my gosh that was the biggest thing for me too or one of the biggest things it's like wait it's it's just us we have to take care of ourselves and so many things just fell down it was like a cascade of uh dominoes or like a, a card or a sandy foundation whatever metaphor you want to choose uh, it all just kind of fell apart. And you know, we talked about this on a past uh, RFRX about how like the extension, existential crisis and like, oh my God, this is so depressing. But yeah, that was, that was something that was tough to come to grips with. Where, where is my sky daddy judge? And how aren't these people going to get their come up, come up and somehow get, cause they need to get punished, right? And, oh Yeah. So it was, it was sobering. Uh, realizing we were all alone and it was just us having to deal with this.
2: Yeah, it is. And it's just like, it's if you subscribe to a certain view of justice and you feel like you don't have a judge to um, enact that justice anymore, it, it can be really um, destabilizing. And so my... You know, to answer again your question, Maya, like my approach to that tends to be, like, I look at people who are harming others, knowingly or unknowingly harming others, myself included, right? Like, I'm sure I unknowingly harm people all the time, and sometimes even knowingly, right? And we do this as human beings, and it hurts us. It hurts others, but it also hurts us. And, um, and it hurts us either because we're ignorant, or it hurts us because we are really attached to our own little precious ego, and mm.
1: that pain and suffering is its own. <laughs> yeah, that's a a great way to close the the session. A bit a bit sad, but I feel like it's I don't know. It doesn't take away from the power that we have, also in the sense of. It, we don't need a supernatural being to know what's right and wrong. We can figure it out ourselves, even if we have our difference, differences of opinions. I feel like we can definitely still make more progress in the world and just blindly trust this, as Eric called, uh, sky daddy to make sure that everything is okay. Um Then let's go check your nice questions straight. Um So the first question I'm going to ask is, um I'm really glad that someone asked this because I... If not, I would have to ask on my own, and someone did it for me, so thank you. So someone mentioned Sam Harris, and I've been reading his book about morality, the moral landscape. Um I don't agree with him fully, but anyway, he, he kinda says that we can get answers, ethical answers to by science. So like answers to moral questions via science. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about this. And the specific question is yeah, basically that one, and then like a follow-up is how about evolved biological contributions to morality? So this idea that morality only exists because we have evolved to avoid um extinction and morality is just a good way of promoting survival amongst ourselves.
2: Interesting. Um Yeah, I mean, I tend to be, a, like I said, I tend to be a humanist, and what I mean by that is that I believe that values originate with humans. Um, I think that sometimes people can can look to the natural world as a moral guidance, right? We can say, like, um, you know, oh, we see that animals acting this way, so we ought to act that way, or we see that the moral universe is in balance, and so we, we need be in balance in a certain way. But I think that that is always filtered through our human interpretations. Um, and so I'm not even sure, like, what. Like science is just a description of the natural world, and morality is about what should or what should be, right, or what ought to be. And I think that those are two different things. Like one is a description of what is, and one is a really description of what ought to be. And I think that the first is the purview of science, and the second is the purview of philosophy. Um, so, so I I think that we can have we can look to science for evidence to. To support our claims about what's right or wrong, if we have a claim and their science seems relevant, <laughs> right, or the natural world seems relevant, but I'm I'm not sure that I, I guess I would want to know more about what that would be like.
1: Too, you know? Yeah, I mean, just to clarify, he he basically says that the the core value that humans value is well-being. So basically, anything that gets us closer to well-being, that is what we should be doing because that is what we all value. Um. He thinks obviously that is objective and blah blah. Um so in 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 that sense of like if if we have a common goal, there is a specific way in which you can get to that goal. Uh-huh. That's that's what he says. We're
2: choosing the goal is a human being, Right. That's so yeah, the, that's the issue. I agree, right. Like if if we like we should look at the epic, right? And we say like if the goal is for everyone on the planet to be able to eat as, as much as they want. Or to be able to eat enough to, to stay alive and not be sick malnutrition, right? If that's the goal, then there might, like, science. Sure, we can turn to to the scientific world and tell us how to do that, and that can help guide us in our actions. But we as humans have to decide what the goals are, and that's based on
1: values. Those, like, yeah, Thank you. That's fair enough. What did I answer oh, yeah. the
4: question?
1: Uh, I think so. They kind of go. Hand in hand, I think is uh, the second question was about oh, how we have evolved to have morality, and what your thoughts are about that. I don't know. Uh,
2: I don't know what I think about that. I'm not. I, I evolutionary psychology is uh, interesting, but I don't, some of it I I just don't know very well, and some of it I'm skeptical about. So, I don't
3: know. Eric, you had a. I sure do. We got another question here, um, uh, and it's kind of a practical one. So how would you, what kind of suggestions would you make for a person who, um, like is a non-believer and they're approached by their religious family and stating that the, you are immoral because you're a non-believer or an atheist, you know, like what what are some of the, the, how would you kind of start or carry on a conversation like that?
2: I mean, so I tend to, (laughs) my approach with those kinds of conversation tends to follow the Socratic movement, right? So Socrates, um, was really known for getting his, uh, his point across by just asking a lot of questions. Essentially, you're, you're asking someone to support their own point of view and asking what they think. And, um, and when you see conflicts or you, Vagueness or whatever, you ask them to explain further and see if they can resolve any tensions or contradictions or vagueness, make it more precise. Um, And I think a lot of times that is a way of, I mean, I think you ought to do that with the purpose of understanding. I think having these kinds of conversations with the goal of trying to other change other people's minds rarely actually works because I think that people's beliefs are not necessarily based on reason. I think they're based on emotions. Um, And I don't just mean religious people. I mean all people. I think we, many of our beliefs are actually emotionally, um, we're emotionally connected to them. That reason and rationality has a very small, small amount to do with it. So, so trying to change someone's mind generally will not go well. Trying to understand them though. And when you don't understand them, helping them understand themselves, um, I think tends to be a little bit more effective. And in my experience, what sometimes happens is that someone will say something. It's like, they say, okay, you're immoral. All right. So can you explain that to me? Right. And people will start talking. It's like, well, what do you mean by that? Or can you, you know, that seems kind of vague, and you expound on that. And often people will get to a point in which they can't respond, right? There's a point of conflict that they can't resolve, or there's a vagueness that they can't make more precise. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong, but it does mean that um, that there may be something there where you can just say, like, that tension there just doesn't work for me, right? So it works for you, but it doesn't work for me, right? And if you want me to look at at my morals, you know, you can say, I believe that we can have moral codes independent of God. And if God came and told you that killing and raping people was okay, would you go and do it? If God told you to kill your firstborn child, would you do it?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And if not, well, what does that say about your relationship with God? And if so,
3: then what does that say about your relationship with ethics? <laughs> I do like your, uh, the Socratic approach. It, um, it's something that I utilize and really enjoy kind of um, exploring with other people and kind of understanding them more coming from curiosity, um, point of view too. One of the questions I kind of do ask is I like turn it around. Um, so if you, like, I would, I would just talk to my friend or family member, like, if you suddenly lost your belief, would you automatically become immoral? Would you go out there and steal and, um, uh, murder and, um, you do all the horrible things you think that, uh, the immoral things that you think, uh, atheists do? And, yeah, more often than not, the answer is no, I wouldn't do that. And, uh, you know, me as an ex believer, I can say, like, well, how am I any different? Like, that's like I would do the same sort of thing.
2: Well, and not uh, only so. that is that your actions, it's like, well, I am telling, you know, I'm being honest and I'm trying to help people, not because I fear punishment or want reward it, from the, the great sky wizard. It's I'm doing it because I think it's the right thing to do, because I think it's the right thing to do, not because I'm out of fear of punishment. Or compass of reward. I'm doing it out of my own sense of my own moral character, my own internal moral compass, and to
1: me, that seems more.
3: Uh, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: makes sense. Um, someone else asks: Is it morally wrong to celebrate the extinction of theistic beliefs?
2: Um, so is it, is it wrong to celebrate the extinction of what? Of theistic beliefs,
1: so like of religious beliefs.
2: Oh, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think what happens a lot of times with people, especially if you came from a, from a religious background and felt particularly harmed by it, um, and see the harm that has been done by it, that people are really, um, tend to be very skeptical and judgmental of people who hold those beliefs. I tend to be a little bit more pragmatic about it. I mean, I, I think that religion helps a lot of people, actually. I think that it gives a lot of people
4: a sense of community, a
2: sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, um, guidance. I think the, you know, the Ten Commandments are not a bad moral code to, to live by, right? Like, sure, go for it. You know, like, um, and so I think that in the name of religion, lots of really atrocious things happened, um, and those things are bad. But you know, the foundations of like be kind to others and like treat other people well seems to me like not being into a problem. So, so I think that it, it's important for all of us to be nuanced, actually, when we make our judgments about religion and those who follow religion. I think that you know. We all have, we're all walking around with ridiculous beliefs in our heads, right? Like, I, I just explained to you how I, like, believe two things at the same time. <laughs> like, and I walk through the world with this, these two sets of beliefs in my brain all the time. And someone who is, you know, if I had a religious person having this conversation with me, they would probably look at me and be like, you clearly don't know what you're talking about, right? And, you know, sure, they can think that. So, I think that we have to be um we have to be open and humble and understanding, and just because we've stopped believing something that other people believe doesn't make us right, you know it really doesn't. I think that you might believe that you're right, and I believe you know I feel comfortable not believing in that religious faith, and i, I think that my worldview aligns with science and you know lots of other things that i I value but I'm not going to you know, celebrate the collapse of c and because it doesn't really matter to me. All
3: right. Um, and we got one final question. Uh, is there a moral code that does not have the potential to be taken advantage of?
2: I mean, I guess it depends what you mean by taken advantage of. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably not that... People have used and abused the words of, um, great thinkers for their own purposes for a long time. And I think it's up to us as critical thinkers to be able to, uh, differentiate between the parts that we want to accept and the parts that we find morally good and the parts that we reject. I mean, that's the task of all of us. And we have to, I think if we're gonna say, all right, I'm going to be uh, fill in the blank now, and I'm going to follow this moral code, and I'm just going to like go for it. And because it's the right one, well, one, you fall into those absolutist problems of like believing you're right and everyone else is an idiot. And then you lose your humility, and you lose your capacity to grow, and you lose your capacity to learn from other people, and maybe start imposing your thoughts on them, and then you turn into the very thing that you didn't want to be. So I think it's up to all of us to continue to be humble, to continue to think critically, to be nuanced, to use our good judgment, to navigate through the world, which is always changing underneath us and which we always need to change it. And there is no clear, clean answer, but welcome to being alive.
0: Recovering from Religion is a non-profit organization whose mission it is to provide hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. Hope Healing and Support is waiting for you on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. There you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts, or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local Recovering from Religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering From Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast.